your blessing on this assembly gathered in your name. Here is the Princeton class of 2005. Shield them in their joy. Fill them with your wisdom. Keep them in your peace. Here are their families and friends watching and listening in this chapel and all around it outside these walls. Set the seal of your gladness upon their hearts today. Here are members of the faculty, administrators, and staff of Princeton University, full of pride and congratulation. May what we do and say in this place confirm them in their calling and renew their strength. Our traditions of faith and worship are many, Make us one in our hunger for truth. Our religious convictions differ. Bind us together in service to the common good. Help us to move from commitment to covenant, from shared hopes to shared work, from the dream of fellowship to the reality of a common life. May we be united in common devotion to truth, to justice, and to the needs of those who have no one to advocate for them. May each of us be wakeful, watchful, discerning, and true of heart. May all self-knowledge be ours, all humility be ours, all compassion be ours, all mercy be ours. 
And may this university, this nation, and the whole human family find peace and refuge under the shadow of your wings, O God of all the nations, bestower of all gifts. Amen. Good afternoon. It gives me great pleasure to extend the warmest of welcomes to our graduating students and to everyone, families, friends, and faculty who have assembled to celebrate their accomplishments. The baccalaureate service is one of Princeton's oldest traditions. The earliest recording baccalaureate address titled Religion and the Public Spirit, was delivered by President Samuel Davies in 1760 to the 11 members of the graduating class. And though its character has changed with time, I will not, for example, be delivering a sermon today. The baccalaureate service continues to provide the senior class with a moment of calm in the sea of excitement surrounding reunions and commencement to reflect with your classmates on your experience at Princeton. I would like to take this opportunity to thank you for making the last four years at Princeton so exhilarating for your fellow students and your professors. As one of my colleagues put it after working with one of you, this is what universities are for. It is about what professors dream about. True learning is a two-way street, and without a student body that is willing to bring fresh ideas to their precepts, their seminars, and their labs, to challenge their teachers and peers, and to transform their personal discoveries into collective dis knowledge, Princeton would be a lesser place to study. I also thank you not only for enriching the intellectual life of our university community, but also for the countless creative, athletic, and social contributions you have made to Princeton. Whether we cheered from the seats in Theater on Team or the Berlin Theater or the stands in Lowry Love Field, or Jadwin Jim, or objected to editorials in the prints, or were moved by the sculptures you made at 185 Nassau, this campus community hummed with your energy. Amid these beautiful surroundings and on this very festive occasion, we have many other reasons to be thankful for the parents and siblings who supported you, for the professors who shaped your thinking, even as you molded theirs, for the friends who cheered you on, and for the unity amid diversity that is so apparent this afternoon. I hope that the spirit of Princeton will linger with you forever.
This is from the Hindu tradition. What follows are excerpts from the Bhagavad Gita, which is the Lord Krishna's counsel to the great warrior Arjuna as a two rode by chariot into an epic battle, and Arjuna began to doubt his dharma, his sacred duty as a warrior, to fight that battle that would return the crown to his family, but kill so many of his kinsmen. <clears throat> that morning, Arjuna put down his weapons and refused to fight. And the Lord told to him, Be intent on action, not on the fruits of action. Avoid attraction to the fruits and attachment to inaction. A man cannot escape the force of action by abstaining from actions. He does not attain success just by renunciation. Surrender all actions to me and fix your reason on your inner self. Without hope or possessiveness, your fever subdued, fight the battle. Here ends the reading. Responsive reading from Psalm 19. The heavens declare the glory of God, and the firmament shows forth God's handiwork. Although they have no words or language, and their voices are not heard. In the deep has God set a pavilion for the sun. It comes forth like a bridegroom out of his chamber. It rejoices like a champion to run its course. The law of the Lord is perfect and revives the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure and gives wisdom to the innocent. of the Lord is clean and endures forever. The judgments of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. Here and ends the reading. A reading from the letter of James. But be doers of the word, and not merely hearers who deceive themselves. For if any are hearers of the word, and not doers, they are like those who look at themselves in a mirror. For they look at themselves, and on going away, immediately forget what they were like. But those who look into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and persevere, being not hearers who forget, but doers who act, they will be blessed in their doing. If anything they are religious, and do not bridle their tongues, but deceive their hearts, their religion is worthless. Religion that is pure 
and undefiled before God the Father is this, to care for the orphans and widows in their distress, and to keep oneself unstained by the world. The word of the Lord.
For many of you, Toni Morrison, the Robert F. Goheen Professor in the Humanities, needs no introduction. Indeed, her novels speak for themselves, and in a way that is at once profoundly beautiful and beautifully profound. The Bluest Eye, Sula, Song of Solomon, Tar Baby, Beloved, Jazz, Paradise, and Love are filled with unforgettable characters whose voices compel us to look at beauty, identity, devotion, and other dimensions of human existence with new eyes. They capture yet transcend the African-American experience, and together they have redefined the modern American novel and American literature itself. The power of Professor Morrison's pen, which has also ranged from children's literature to literary criticism, is reflected in a host of honors. She was the first African-American to win the Nobel Prize in literature, and the first woman to do so in more than half a century. She has won the Pulitzer Prize in literature, the National Book Critics Award, the National Humanities Medal, and most recently, the American Library Association's Coretta Scott King Award. Professor Morrison's life can be said to have prepared her for her role as a storyteller. As a child in Lorain, Ohio, where she absorbed the stories and songs that her parents carried with them from the South, as a student at Howard University, from which she graduated in 1953, and as an editor at Random House, where she nourished the careers of numerous authors. As some of you know firsthand, Professor Morrison is also an accomplished teacher, one who has guided and inspired students from Howard to Yale, and happily for us, at Princeton, where she has taught since 1989. Among her other contributions to our university community is the Princeton Atelier, which brings professional artists to campus to collaborate with students and faculty on original creative projects. Last but not least, she has helped to define the place and the idea to use her terms, that are this university. On the occasion of Princeton's 250th anniversary, she linked our past and future, reminding us that Princeton's strength is knowing what its founders knew, that service to the individual, to the government, to the world, requires unwavering commitment to intellectual freedom a fierce commitment to values already being debased by apathy, virtues such as integrity and honor and fair play and courage. If ever there were words to live by, they are these. And now, as you prepare to put your education to good use, Professor Morrison will speak to us.
I am honored and delighted to welcome her on your behalf. Changed my mind. <laughs> I am grateful for the invitation and the opportunity to address Princeton University's, by all accounts, sterling class of 2005. And I want to pay my respects to all those gathered here who enabled you and cherished you. And I invite them to eavesdrop on my comments this afternoon, but they have been shaped really only for you. I have read somewhere that in addition to awe, sometimes experienced as fear, there are two human responses to the perception of chaos, naming and violence. When the chaos is simply the unknown, the naming may be accomplished with no or relatively little bloodshed. For example, a new species, a new demon, a star, an equation, a medical prognosis, mapping, charting, or devising proper nouns for unnamed or stripped of names populations, for anonymous landscape or natural catastrophes. When chaos resists by reforming itself or rebelling against imposed order, violence is understood to be the most frequent response and the most rational when confronting the unknown, the catastrophic, the untamed, the wild, the wanton, the incorrigible. Censure, incarceration via camps, holding places, prisons, or death, by execution, singly, or even in groups, or in war. St. Thomas Aquinas himself wrote that apostates were to be eliminated from the world by death. But the chaos I am referring to is not natural or political disruptions, plagues, floods, 
civil war, religious war, and conquest. I'm here concerned with despair, the despair, intellectual and spiritual, that surfaces when the idea of a humane future is diminished or completely lost to those who are still ill at ease in an unjust world. When hope seems to be the terrain of the very, very young and the insistently naive. We can and we do name this unease. We analyze it, relabel it, define it, as is clear from the public discourse and the rhetoric of globalism, its promises and its threats. And of course, naming can lead to, can become, and functions as action. Scientific applications are involved in and poised to erase hunger, annihilate pain, extend individual lifespans by producing illness-resistant people and disease-resistant crops. Communication technology is making sure that virtually everyone on Earth can interact with each other and be informed, entertained, and maybe even educated while doing so. Through naming, we are warned about global changes in weather that may radically alter human environment. We're warned of the consequences of maldistributed resources on human survival and warned of the impact of overdistributed humans on natural resources. We invest in the promises and try to act intelligently on the warnings, but the promises sometimes trouble us with ethical dilemmas and a horror of playing God blindly, while the warnings have left us less and less sure of how and which and why. The dire prophecies that win our attention are those with bank accounts large enough or photographs sensational enough to force debate and outline corrected action so we can decide which war or famine or political debacle or environmental crisis is intolerable enough. Which disease, which oppressive institution or government, which plant, which animal, bird or fish needs our attention most, helping us choose which cause is greatest, which poster child is the more affecting. Other than all violence and naming, 
there is a fourth response to chaos, which I really haven't read about, which is stillness. Such stillness can appear to be passivity or dumbfoundedness, but sometimes it is prayer. Sometimes it is meditation. Sometimes it is art. Certainly early Americans could lay claim to all four, awe, violence, naming, and stillness. This latter seems to be at the heart of the works of Emerson and Thoreau. It's traceable in the Puritan ethos as well. Although the quality of stillness was braced from the start with pragmatism, pragmatism, there was always the need to provide for heirs, to commit to a distant future. And there was the perception of wealth as God's bounty, which it was a sin not to accumulate and protect. This highly materialistic stillness as practiced by clerical and religious immigrants was in marked contrast to the take only what you need and leave the land as you found it philosophy of pre-industrial societies they found here and very different from old world personal commitments to poverty and beggary as the highest forms of ethical life that lived right alongside aristocratic assumptions of ownership divinely assigned to the hands and coffers of the reigning power. One of the more interesting debates in the early formation of public and private responsibility is the negotiation between thrift and awe, between religious solace and natural exploitation, between physical restraint and repression and spiritual excess, between freedom and slavery, between what was sacred and what was profane. These negotiations insinuated themselves into the fabric, the idea of democracy, and compelled some, drove some to art. Hawthorne, Melville, the controversial George Catlin, the popular James Finnemore Cooper, even the architecture of lean and elegantly modest churches and graceful opulent cathedrals. They are the same negotiations between fear or awe which require man's control and the acceptance of disorder and difference as the thrill of life and art that persist in the tension on display in public and private life today. We can ease the tension by denial, holding dear the convictions of Dr. Pangloss, or a return to the mythic pre-enlightenment past. We can savor the confusion as the excitement of the new, the 
post-postmodern, the liberation of the body and the psyche as opportunities for the accumulation of knowledge. We can also meet the unknown, confront the chaos with our own humanity. Princeton has offered you instruments, knowledge, strategies of critical thought, contact with others, instruments to inform your choices and shape your negotiations. Still, the narrative of a single, humane, worthy life is yours to write. And I urge you, don't settle for happiness because it's not good enough anymore. I know that has been the real, if covert, goal of your labors here, your choice of companions, of activities, of the professions you will enter, and I do admit that you deserve it. But if that's all you have in mind, if happiness is your sole reason, I want to suggest to you that personal success devoid of meaningfulness, free of steady commitment to social justice, is more than a barren life. It is a trivial one, looking good instead of doing good. There is serious work for you to do. I know, I understand that you've been blasted with media designed to alter you from citizens into consumers, from individuals into groups, from a yearning for maturity to a desire for eternal childhood. But I tell you, no generation, least of all mine, has a complete grip on the imagination and goals of subsequent generations, not if you refuse to let it be so. You don't have to accept media or even scholarly labels for yourself. Generation X or Y or Z or Echo or post-boomer or minority or majority or red state or blue state or this social caste or that social caste. Every true hero and heroine breaks free from his or her class, whether it is upper or lower or middle, to serve a wider world. Of course you are general and must sometimes function as such, but you are also specific. You are a citizen in a community and a person like no other on the planet. No one has your exact memory but you. And unless you are an identical twin, so far, no one has your singular genetic makeup but you. What is now the limit of human endeavor is not the limit of intelligent endeavor. And what is now known is not at all what you are capable of knowing. There is serious, hard, 
and ennobling work to do. And bit by bit, step by step, you can change the things that need changing. Think of it. A century from now, it's quite possible that people will be stung by the things that were taken for granted in 2005. They might laugh or shake their heads in wonder and dismay at our notions of progress, our notions of justice, our notions of the value of work and life. What? They might exclaim, you mean to tell me that people had actually to work several jobs, save, to pay for their own education? I don't believe you. How could a nation put the financial burden of improving the level of its own citizens' education in the marketplace? I know they sold water, but did they also require them to pay for air? Are you telling me that illness incurred huge personal debt? That families were wiped out trying to pay it? And that companies were so beholden to a level of profit for its own life that they could no longer afford health benefits for their employees? that 50 and 60-year-old men were dragged away, forced to abandon their families and jobs to fight in foreign countries? You mean children, little children, were put in school environments so dangerous that no adult would willingly, freely choose to enter them? that whole families lived in tunnels and cardboard boxes, on toxic wasteland and on the street, that nations watched as entire populations were shoveled and backhoed into mass graves, or that the dead were left dying, left lying on lawns and boulevards, providing sustenance, for starving dogs, that large, beautiful, wide-spirited religions look back with nostalgia to 1492 when Spain cleansed itself of Jews, look back and imitated 2004 when Sudan blocked food and remained content to watch the slow starvation of people of the same religion. Look back with sympathy for those who in 1592 slaughtered 10,000 on St. Bartholomew's Day. Or look back with satisfaction to 2001 when thousands were blown to filament in New York City. You mean that the wonderful, merciful religions dreamed of a return to 1692 when Salem burned its own daughters and wives and mothers, 
that these intelligent, revered religions turned a blind eye to cities choked with sex tourists feeding off the bodies of young girls and boys? Perhaps these people, a hundred years from now, will gasp, recoil, as they discover a darker, the darker history of the 21st century. Or maybe not. Maybe by that time, generations descended from you, taught by you, inspired by you, will have imagined and forged a world worthy of you. Your education has already readied you for such a leap of imagination. Princeton has already offered you opportunities to, for reflection and activity. That gesture toward the noble is already giving you the tools to refine your own response to contemporary chaos, to modern unease. You are your own stories and therefore free to imagine and experience what it takes to remain human without resources, what it feels like to be human without domination over others, without fear of others unlike you, without rotating, rehearsing, and reinventing the hatred learned in the sandbox. And although you don't have complete control of the story of your life, you can nevertheless create it. Although you will never fully know or successfully manipulate all the characters who surface or disrupt your planned plot, you can respect the ones who do by paying them close attention and doing them justice. The theme you choose may change or elude you, but being your own story means you can always set the tone. It also means you can invent the language to say who you are and how you mean in the world. Of course, I am a storyteller, and therefore an optimist, a firm believer in the ethical bend of the human heart, a believer in the mind's appetite for truth and its disgust with fraud, I'm a believer in the power of knowledge and the ferocity of beauty. So from my point of view, your life is already artful, waiting, just waiting for you to make it art. From my point of view, your life is already a miracle of chance waiting, just waiting for you to shape 
its destiny. Please accept my blessings and my congratulations. Blessed are you, O God, creator of life. You give us purpose and hope. Blessed are you, eternal truth. You give us minds to know you in the things that you have made. Blessed are you, source of all mercy. You know our weaknesses and are always ready to forgive. Teach us to love our neighbors as ourselves. Blessed are you, lover of souls. You bind in one community the living and the dead. May our hearts honor those who came before us and serve those who will come after us. Blessed are you, wellspring of all wisdom. Please join me in the prayer for Princeton. O eternal God, the creator and preserver of all things, we beseech you to bestow upon this university your manifold gifts of grace, your truth to those who teach, your joy to those who learn, your wisdom to those who administer, your lives to those who hold its mission and its work and trust. By these gracious influences of your spirit, bind all who bear the name of Princeton into the company of those who know your steadfast love. Amen. You may be seated. Zen Master Dao Yi's vow for awakening. Our only prayer is to be firm in our determination to give ourselves completely to the Buddha's way so that no doubts arise, however long the road seems to be. To be light and easy in the four parts of the body. To be strong and courageous in body and mind. To be free from illness and overcome both depressed feelings and distractions. To be free from calamity, misfortune, harmful influences, and obstruction. Not to seek the truth outside of ourselves so we may instantly enter the right way. To be unattached to all thoughts that we may reach the perfectly clear, bright mind of prajna and have immediate enlightenment on the great matter. Thereby, we receive the transmission of the deep wisdom of the Buddha to save all sentient beings who suffer in the round of birth and death. 
In this way, we offer our gratitude for the compassion of the Buddhas and Bodhisattvas. The written word taken from Numbers 6, 24 through 27. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and to be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. So shall they put my name upon the people of Israel, and I will bless them, says the Lord. The word of God for the people of God. A Jewish prayer of thanksgiving in Hebrew and English translation. Modim anachnulach shatahu Adonai Eloheinu velohei Dorotenu leolam va'ed. We give thanks to you, Adonai our God and God of our generations, today and for eternity, a firm, enduring source of life, a shield to us in time of trial. You are ever there from age to age. We acknowledge you, declare your praise, and thank you for our lives entrusted to your hand, for our souls placed in your keeping, for, our, for your miracles which greet us every day, and for your wondrous gifts at all times, morning, noon, and night. Great one whose kindness never stops, kind one whose loving acts have never failed, you have always been our hope. You are our rescue and our aid. Baruch Ata Adonai, Hatov Shimcha, Ulecha Nae Lehodot. Blessed are you, Adonai, whose name is good and to whom all thanks are due. Doksasi Kirie, Doksasi. Glory to thee, O Lord, glory to thee. O heavenly King, the Comforter, the Spirit of Truth, who art present everywhere and fillest all things, treasury of blessings and giver of life, come and abide in us, cleanse us of every stain, and save our souls, O good one. A Unitarian Prayer for the Great Adventure. We whose lives are burdened by indecision pray for courage to face life as a great adventure. We are tempted to be satisfied with a life sheltered from risks. We distrust our dreams lest they prove illusory. We yield ourselves to the prudential way of life. Waken us, O God, from this lethargy and give us the will to live dangerously. Dear Lord, we thank you for the many blessings the class of 2005 has received. In the midst of this joyous celebration of our accomplishments, let us take a moment to recall the words of the Blessed Mother Teresa of Calcutta. At the ends of our lives, 
We will not be judged by how many diplomas we have received, how much money we have made, or how many great things we have done. We will be judged by, I was hungry, and you gave me to eat. I was naked, and you clothed me. I was homeless, and you took me in. Hungry not only for bread, but hungry for love. Naked not only for clothing, but naked of human dignity and respect. Homeless not only for want of a room of bricks, but homeless because of rejection. This is Christ in distressing disguise. As we move beyond the gates of Princeton, may we strive to use the knowledge we have gained and the talents we have developed to humbly serve our brothers and sisters in Christ. We ask this prayer through Jesus Christ our Lord, who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one God forever and ever. Amen. O oh, my Lord and Sustainer, grant me that I may be grateful for your favor, which you have bestowed upon me and upon both my parents, and that I may work righteousness such as you may approve. Truly I have turned to you, and truly I am of those who submit to you. Please stand. The peace of God be always with you. Let's share it with one another.
Receive now these words of benediction. When you began this journey four years ago in this very space, these words by the poet Langston Hughes were offered on that day. Hold fast to dreams, for if dreams die, life is a broken-winged bird that cannot fly. Hold fast to dreams, for if dreams go, life is a barren field frozen with snow. May God, who fashions all dreams, dwell richly with you in the unfolding of your own and keep you filled with hope. May God's face shine upon you and be gracious unto you, giving you strength to give voice to your visions and fulfill your destiny. May God lift up God's own countenance upon you and enable you to offer your life as a gift in service to repair and redeem the world. May God give you a peace to calm you in times of turmoil, strength to uphold you in seasons of weakness, courage to sustain you in periods of fear. And may the God who comes anew in each generation give you heart for the journey. Amen. Please join in the dismissal. Go forth rejoicing in the power of the Spirit.
in each generation give you heart for the journey. Amen.